Hey everybody, this is Danny Heineman from RUF at the University of Wisconsin, and I'm here with one of my interns, Kelsey Sullivan. Hey guys, welcome back. Welcome back to A Story to Tell. A Story to Tell is a podcast that we are doing as a ministry here on campus uh, as a means of maintaining some kind of connection with our students. But the idea behind it is that we want to help put contemporary questions and issues and ideas in their historical, primarily, but also their biblical and theological context. So basically understanding that everything we experience is kind of part of a story. This week, we are continuing our conversation that we began last week, basically telling the story about um, what it means that we are reformed. <laughs> A lot of people ask us about this. Uh, it's in our name, RUF, and uh, sometimes we don't have a lot of time to explain it. So so last week, we were able to cover some of the schisms and divisions that mm-hmm. happened in the early church. And sort of the heresy that was going on and, and why it was important for these people to be preserving the truth. Yeah. Um, and now we're going to be talking about some of the on-ramping or the events that are leading up to the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. So the Protestant Reformation, like everything in history, doesn't just like, it didn't just come out of the blue, right? I mean, there were a lot of things that were going on that led up to it. And I think sometimes the way that we think about it or there, there's kind of like a, a surface level understanding of the Reformation that is mostly accurate in terms of the like events and the people involved but I don't know if, if you don't understand what was going on in the like you know two or three hundred years before Martin Luther did his thing you're not gonna have as full a picture of of the reality on the ground. I think that matters. I mean, I think you are at risk of overgeneralizing and stereotyping when the story is actually a little more complicated than a lot of the kind of pop narrative of the Reformation and kind of where the churches even stand today. You know, like there, I think there's, there's, there are some common misconceptions that I think are, are helpfully corrected by understanding the story behind it. Yeah, so we're hoping to sort of correct these misconceptions, Danny. I think it was last week we stopped at about 1054 Mm -hmm. and they were going to try to get up to Martin Luther. But what are some of these events between 1054 to the time where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door? Yeah. So Luther did his, he, he nailed this thing that we call the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church or Wittenberg as is kind of properly said in 1517, which is about 500 years after the East and the West mutually excommunicated each other, which is a story that we talked about last week. And those 95 theses were, that's what they were. They were 95 theological statements that Luther wanted to have a debate about. But it was the, the, the directness with which many of them were stated so, so accurate to the frustrations that so many people were feeling Mm. that they were almost immediately like reprinted and distributed all over the place. And it set off this kind of powder keg of frustration across Europe so that like a hundred years later, it was like 60% of, of Europe was what they began to call Protestant. And that, that makes sense it, why it's called the Protestant Reformation. The two words are protest, yep. Protestant, and reform. Yep. So we had these concerns about the theological workings of the church at the time and Totally. And I think that one of the really important things to understand is that it was 
it was a reform movement. You know, the goal was was reform, not schism or destruction. Now they were kind of forced into that by the way that the establishment church responded, but that wasn't the idea. And, and uh, in the minds of most of the reformers, uh, what they were doing was calling the church back to its uh, what we call patristic roots, like the roots of the church fathers, um, the early Christians who were interpreting the scriptures and coming up with the theology, some of the th- theology even that we talked about last week. And so what unfortunately happened was was less of a reform movement and more of a schism, like a, a rejection of the other party and a, and a refusal to come together and kind of hammer out a consensus. Now, what were some of these things that Martin Luther was protesting? So there were two major things. Um, and, you know, it was Luther, Luther's, the 95 Theses are primarily theological in their, in their uh, criticisms. But there were two two types of criticisms that I, that were levied against the, the church in the time of the Protestant Reformation, so in the 1500s or so. Uh, one of those was theological. The other was moral. Um, there, there was a real, a frankly, like shocking level of moral decay that, that had been going on in the, in the church. I mean, in the offices of the church, in the, in the clergy. So priests, bishops, cardinals, archbishops, popes. I mean, some of they were, you can see, you actually see this in some like medieval art. I mean, there, it was kind of a, a running inside joke. And this wasn't everybody, obviously, but it was, it was a lot of people. And especially uh, the higher you went, the more uh, morally corrupt it seemed to get. So, I mean, it was a lot of sexual corruption. It was a lot of financial corruption. And, uh, and so there was this like moral thrust of, of reformation as well, in addition to theological. So, What's the story, Danny? How did this happen? Well, it is a crazy story. And I think, I mean, it's it's genuinely, I think, one of the most fascinating stories in all of church history. And, there, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, it reads kind of like a soap opera. Um, but here's basically how it went down. And you can stop me whenever you need some clarification. Um, okay. So if you want to understand the Protestant Reformation, you really have to understand that the Protestant Reformation happened... Uh, at kind of at the culmination of about a thousand years of what I would call papal overreach, the overreach of authority, overreaching of authority by people who were inhabiting the office of the Bishop of Rome. The one thing to say, though, is the story isn't all doom and gloom. Like some of the best theology and some of the greatest minds of the church in, in, inhabited this period of time. You had people like a guy named Pascasius Radbertus, William of Ockham, Duns Scotus, both of whom I have major problems with, but they were brilliant. They were geniuses. Uh, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, you had you had like brilliant stuff going on. Albert the Great. But by the time we got to the 15th century, things had um, dis- things had really disintegrated to a point where reform was necessary. So we're going to tell a story first about kind of the way that the Pope developed. So if you remember from last week, the the Pope, the way we think about it now, is another way of saying the the Bishop of Rome. The interesting thing about that is that in this when you when you're in the sixth century, so the 500s, you have five popes. You had the Pope in Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, Rome, and they all had claims to uniqueness. Rome and Constantinople were kind of the traditional heads of this table because they were the imperial cities. And as the old Roman Empire crumbled in the West, which happened in you know 400s, 500s, 600s, this this office had in many way in many ways degenerated into a, a local political office for Roman families. Now, 
these this political office needed protection. And so they aligned themselves with, you know, local strongmen, people who had access to weapons and men and things of that nature. Now, one of these groups... Is it the was, church that's doing this? Yes. Specifically the Bishop of Rome. Because it was this, like, quasi-political office. It was, it was ecclesial and political. Which is hard for us to understand as, like, people who live in a place where church and state are so zealously separated but that was that's a that's a new thing in, in world history so one of these groups that the popes aligned themselves with was from an area that we call germany now and their king converted to christianity and when when that happened usually the people converted as well and they were called the merovingian empire merovingians within the court of the merovingian empire was a guy who has a really funny name his name was pepin the short <laughs> he began to rise in power for reasons that we don't really have time to go into. Mainly, kings in the Merovingian Empire weren't allowed to do anything, and so it was their like second-in-command that did all the stuff, and they actually had all the power. And Pepin realized that. And so he was like, if I have all the power, I should be king, not this bozo who like sits in the, in the palace all day. So anyway, the Bishop of Rome had aligned himself with a military group that failed. And when that happened, Pepin saw his chance to kind of move for power so he wrote to that pope and was like hey we will offer you protection if you if you make me king and so for the first time ever this is around 750 uh, the pope crowned a king this had not happened before pepin conquered the people who were threatening rome and he turned that territory back over to the bishop of rome and that was all part of an agreement to establish what Pepin wanted to call the Holy Roman Empire. We spoke of that a little bit last week. And another word for this is the Carolingian dynasty. It only lasted 90 years, the Carolingian dynasty. It had this like really profound impact on social structure of Europe and on the role of the Pope. It just sounds like, a, it sounds, I don't think about the church functioning in that way. Yeah. As like a governmental structure. Yep. But it seems like even the church was seeking power. Yeah, and that, I mean, this is this is one of the things that was really power was corrupting the moral and theological purity of the church. In the creation of the, the Holy Roman Empire, there was this explicit mingling of emperor and pope, of ecclesial power and political power. You didn't really have like a quote unquote like state the way we think about it, church and state back then. States didn't exactly exist yet. But when when uh, when this Carolingian Empire fell apart. Uh, Europe fell apart, and when Europe fell apart, the church fell apart because they were so closely intermingled at this point. And uh, when that happened, you had local factions with local interests ruling Europe in all the different places. And for about a hundred years, a local faction ruled the city of Rome and therefore had control of the papacy or the, the bishop of Rome. Now, here's what happened. In 1046, the king of France, named Henry, he marched on Rome to uh, restore order and the papacy. Now, part of the task of, of restoration was restoring the public's esteem for the Pope. Like, what he, what he found there when he got there is that there were three popes, <laughs> all claiming authority. He threw them all out. He appointed a new one, and he set about a plan for reform. And one of the central things for this plan of reform, this, this does relate directly to the Reformation, so just stick with me. One of the central things that was to this plan of restoration was an independently powerful papacy that would exercise direct like jurisdictional control of Christendom that that was like an indispensable condition for renewal in Henry's mind like that had to happen why he, do you think that that was important it, well I mean it was kind of like I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent 
it was basically like we need to cent- we need to re-centralize power like we need to pull the pope out of this like local petty political back and forth and put him back in his global role so for the next 300 years uh, the western pope like the bishop of rome and the french king were tied together now this is around this time so 1046 if you remember that's that's just before the schism in between east and west in 1054 there's a little document that one of the popes named gregory the seventh wrote in 1075 which is about 20 years after the schism between east and west and here here's just a couple examples of things that he said about the nature of the of the bishop of rome the roman bishop alone was the only bishop kind of founded by god uh, the bishop of Rome was incapable of error and infallible. He's writing about himself here. Uh, the bishop of Rome has power to give salvation. And the bishop of Rome is the literal in, incarnation of Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus. That, that, that's just a couple selections from this document that has like, I don't know, 15 or 20 statements about how important the bishop of Rome is. So that's that's I like guess I, I guess he thinks pretty highly of himself. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the that's the environment. Like that's 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 how people were talking about the Bishop of Rome in this in this period of time. Um So Danny, just to be clear, yeah. the events that we've talked about in this podcast have happened before 1054. We just kind of crossed over 1054. We went a little bit farther back, but now now we're back, you know, on the other side of 1054. So that's what was going on. If you fast forward about 300 years, you get into the 1370s. At this point, there hadn't the, the, the so-called Bishop of Rome hadn't even lived in Italy, much less Rome, for about 60 years because Rome had just fallen into a state of anarchy. Where was he living? He was living in a place called Avignon, which is in France. You can still hear this connection between France and in the papacy, right? So they were living there because Rome was just kind of like a like a failed city. Like there was no political stability there. Now when they did come back, the craziness continued and we're going to talk about that. And it's really one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. So th- 1376, Pope returns to Rome from France. 1378, two years later, that Pope dies and the cardinals who are kind of the the next the next step down, they need to elect a new guy. So they get together and they elect a guy who takes the name Urban the Sixth. How do you elect a new pope? Who do you select from? Uh, you can pick anybody, but the cardinals—they're kind of—it's you know in the hierarchy, cardinal is like the thing right below pope, and so it's the College of Cardinals that elects that votes on a new pope. So the College of Cardinals elect a guy who takes the name Urban the Sixth. This guy was not Roman, but he was an Italian and he was fairly well known. But the Roman mob or the, the citizens of the city of Rome were not happy because they were used to having their own kind of Roman guy in the office. You know, for centuries, the Pope had been the possession of kind of petty local Roman politics. And the Cardinals were in, were, this is part of the attempt to return the, the office to some kind of, you know, global authority. And they were into that, but they wanted it to be a Roman. And so they, they were like actually chanting outside uh, the building. We want a Roman, and so when they heard that it was a, that it was not going to be a Roman, even though it was an Italian, they actually like burst into the papal palace, and all the cardinals freaked out, and they threw. This is kind of hilarious. They threw the papal vestments on some old guy, who who like couldn't physically resist them, <laughs> and uh, 
and they said, "Here's the here's the Pope." So they they picked a random dude. Well, they they Pope. yeah they lied. They were like they this is the guy when it wasn't really the guy exactly. And the guy was like, "No, no, no, it's not me." Um, and then Can you imagine? Oh man, it's it's so crazy. It gets crazier too. It gets crazier. And he was like, Archbishop Bari is the one who has been elected Pope. And people knew who he was. And the Romans were like, ah, well, he's not a Roman, but we like him. So we're good. So they, they were like, oh, well, okay. And then they left. Now, it seemed like everything was cool after that. They, they elect Bari. He becomes Urban VI. But the cardinals who elected him didn't really understand that he really actually genuinely wanted to reform the papal court. He, he condemned churchmen who were taking income from congregations from whom they were like perpetually absent, which is a really common thing. Like, just imagine paying a pastor who never actually showed up to your church. They confronted cardinals who were living, you know, quote-unquote, luxurious lives. He got so mad at one, he almost, like, beat him, like, beat him up physically. There were even some rumors that he may have killed somebody because <laughs> he got so mad at him. I don't know if that, that's hard to say if that's true or not, but, but that, was the, that was the vibe that he was giving off. So, in, in just six months after electing Urban the sixth, these cardinals who had like unwittingly elected somebody to the office of Pope with that had some piety, you know, they, they declared the election invalid on a technicality. And what they said, which was a lie, is that they were afraid when they elected him and they did it to appease the Roman mob. So what they did is they elected a new Pope. Within six months? Within six months. And in that Pope formed a new college of cardinals, which technically neither of those could exist, like technically speaking. I mean, it'd be like two, two presidents and two cabinets. You so know they what I'm just saying? broke all the rules. Yeah, they broke all the rules. And for the next 40 years, you had two Popes. You had one in Rome and then one in Avignon, France, back in Avignon. And they were both claiming apostolic authority and authority over all Christians globally. And so you can imagine that this did some pretty serious damage to the papal claims to universal authority that they're still trying to like bump up. You know, they're still trying to re uh, reform and restore the, the authority of this office. And they realized it then too. So what happened is uh, in 1409, there was a council in the city called Pisa, like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? And they elected a new pope. <laughs> and so, so now there's three popes. Now there's three popes. And they said they needed to meet in three years again for a reform. And so they met again, uh, this time in a, in a town called Constance. And it, that council, <laughs> they deposed the pope they had just elected. And the other two, in the meantime, had died. And they ruled that the pope, at, at this council, they ruled that the pope was not the supreme authority of the church. But it was the church itself and the church's councils, which is... A, essentially how the church functioned in its early years, right? We get like we talked about the Council of Nicaea last week. That's they were essentially kind of trying to recover that. So But now there's one pope. No, there were no popes now because oh, there's no popes. There were three, two of them died and then they deposed the third. And so in 14 What's that? So that's a fast turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty clean. So in 1418, they elect a new pope. And for the first time, he recognized these the same people who were the same cardinals who declared that the councils of the church had more authority than the pope at the Council of okay. Constance. Um, so 1418, we've got a new pope. 
And but he is the first time he's the first pope in a long time to be elected, recognizing that he was under the authority of the church, not not the at the top. So the church is not under him; he's under their rule. That's right. Okay. So what you see here is the same thing that was going on like way back at the beginning of the church, and uh, the question was between like councils and bishops, who's who's who has more authority. And the consensus after this Council of Constance was that the gathering of overseers or of bishops, which is another way of saying a council, they, they had more authority. It was, a, it was a movement towards trusting the wisdom of the many over the few. However, within 20 years, the councils faded, and through the kind of shrewd politicking of one of the popes and some, of the poor, some like poor political moves by the bishops and the kind of impractical demands of meeting, by, in 1460... Stay with me. The Council of Constance was annulled. Now, for the next hundred years, you have what we call the Renaissance popes, the popes that all came after this decision. And they were some of the most notorious abusers of this newfound and kind of newly restored papal authority. They, they also had the task of rebuilding public support and respect for what had been just like a comical list of contradictions and incongruities for the last couple hundred years. It just seems silly. Yeah, it's ridic- It's insane. It's totally it's insane. It's like flip-flopping back and forth between who has power. That's right. So what they did is they started expanding papal lands. This is a thing that had happened that we don't have time to explain, but the, the popes began to establish familial dynasties, like ecclesial dynasties by appointing nephews as cardinals, and then those nephews would become popes. It was like, you know, a family line. It, it's really started to mirror, like, a king, you know, whose descendants take office. 1458 to 1464, you had Pope Pius, ironically named Pope Pius II. And he wrote this document that said, an appeal to a council is an appeal to nothing, which is like directly against the Council of Constance. Another one you had was uh, Pope Sixtus. He turned the papal lands into a principality, like an actual like governed territory. And he annulled the Council of Constance. Uh, The next one you had Innocent III. He had two children out of wedlock and continued this like trend of nepotism. Alexander VI bribed his way into the office. He paid for it. And he openly admitted to having several mistresses and several children and was said to have arranged like orgies in the papal palace. You had Julius II, who they called the warrior pope. He created an army to protect papal lands and had several children out of wedlock to maintain several mistresses. And some councils who basically didn't have any power but were still meeting, they charged him with, uh, quote-unquote, lewd sexual conduct. You had Leo X, whose famous phrase was, since God gave us the papacy, let us enjoy it. He was the pope between 1513 and 1521. And he spent all of the money that the Bishop of Rome had in two years. And he was the one who instituted this policy of granting indulgences. He said that these indulgences were a means of purchasing forgiveness for yourself and for others. The indulgences that Leo X sold were the way, they were the thing uh, that provided the funds to build St. Peter's Cathedral. And it was this practice that pushed an Augustinian friar in Wittenberg named Martin Martin Luther over the edge. And he posted 95 points of dispute between himself and the common practice of the church. Now, this whole on-ramp, this whole like two to three hundred year period, I think needs to be understood as a consequence of the attempt to restore the grandeur of the papal office that had been damaged by the, the 200 years before it. And it also needs to be understood as this 200 year buildup of pressure 
that led to the kind of explosion of this this like powder keg that was the Protestant Reformation. It didn't come out of thin air. It had been building for centuries. This financial extravagance and immorality of the leaders of the church and, and the theological infidelity of those leaders, it finally caused it to blow and it tore the Western church into tatters. Now, what I want to talk about next week is how the church actually responded to this. And if this all sounds like a soap opera, I think you're understanding it correctly. It, it needs to be understood that this movement of the Spirit, which I think the Reformation was, this movement of the Spirit against the structure and corruption and criminality of the church in the West, it, it, in that sense, it was, a, it was a good thing. But I also think it needs to be understood that it was a sad solution to a really terrible problem. And it had its own issues, and it's, it, those issues are challenges that we face today. Like, the church remains in pieces. And it's, it was this 200-year this buildup that we're still essentially dealing with today.